Hello, it's Trisha, and welcome back to A Break From Reality. Today, we're going to be talking about the story we read in the last part of this episode, called The Velt by Ray Bradbury. You should listen to that part first, but in case it's been a while, here's a quick recap of everything that happened before we jump in. Enjoy! As a disclaimer, the music in this recap is by Eric Matias at soundimage.org. George, I wish you'd look at the nursery. They walked down the hall of their soundproofed happy life home, this house which clothed and fed and rocked them to sleep, and played and sang and was good to them. The nursery was silent. The walls began to purr and recede into the crystalline distance. Presently, an African veld appeared, in three dimensions on all sides, in color reproduced to the final pebble and bit of straw. This is a little too real, but I don't see anything wrong. Wait a minute, you'll see, said his wife. You see, there are the lions far over that way. The lions stood looking at George and Lydia Hadley with terrible green-yellow eyes. Watch out, screamed Lydia. The lions came running at them. You've got to tell Wendy and Peter not to read any more on Africa. And lock the nursery for a few days until I get my nerves settled. You know how difficult Peter is about that. And Wendy, too. They live for the nursery. I feel like I don't belong here. Can I compete with an African veldt? Can I give a bath and scrub the children as efficiently or quickly as the automatic scrub bath can? Wendy and Peter were coming in the front door. Your mother and I were just traveling through Africa, said George Haldy. There is no Africa in the nursery, said Peter simply. Oh, come now, Peter, we know better. I don't remember any Africa, said Peter to Wendy. Do you? No. And they all walked down the hall together and opened the nursery door. There was a green, lovely forest. A lovely river, a purple mountain. The African Veltland was gone. The lions were gone. George Haldy walked through the singing glade and picked up something that lay in the corner near where the lions had been. An old wallet of mine, he said. There were drops of saliva on it and it had been chewed and there were blood smears on both sides. We've given the children everything they ever wanted. Is this our reward? Secrecy? Disobedience? They come and go when they like. They treat us as if we were offspring. They were spoiled and were spoiled. A moment later, they heard the screams. Those screams, they sound familiar. Matter of fact, we're thinking of turning the whole house off for about a month. That sounds dreadful. Would I have to tie my own shoes instead of letting the shoe tire do it? David, you're a psychologist. My advice to you is to have the whole damn room torn down. This room is their mother and father, far more important in their lives than their real parents. And now you come along and want to shut it off. No wonder there's hatred here. The lions look real, don't they? said George Haldy. I don't suppose there's any way that they could become real? You can't do that to the nursery. You can't. It's off, and it stays off, and the whole house dies, as of here and now. Don't let them do it, wailed Peter at the ceiling, as if he was talking to the house. All right, all right, if they'll just shut up. One minute, mind you, and then off forever. They heard the children calling. Daddy, Mommy, come quick, quick! Wendy, Peter! They ran into the nursery. The Veltland was empty, save for the lions, waiting, looking at them. The door slammed. Why, they've locked it from the outside, Peter! And then they heard the sounds, the lions on three sides of them. Mr. and Mrs. Haldy screamed, and suddenly they realized 
why those other screams had sounded familiar. did you like the story? I really loved it. From the very beginning, they just set up the scene so eerily. Like, you could tell there was something wrong about the house, and then waiting to see what that was and finally having it come through was a joy to read. It was. I really liked the progression of the story overall. I apologize, I am a little sick today. It starts out with the mom being paranoid about the nursery the father being very nonchalant about it. In the end, it turns out the father is the one who's most adamant to get rid of the nursery at all. Right? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember having to edit out a very choice word the father (laughs) uses when talking about the house. Yeah, he gets really creeped out at the end. And I feel like the story overall, even though it was written in like the 1950s, I believe, Mm -hmm. it's very similar to a lot of stories you read today about just like the dystopian technology use in the future and the effects it's going to have on the human race and how it's going to turn us into people say it be like technology is going to turn us into like vegetables right wally (laughs) wally one word wally you're right you're right you're right it's the type of thing people say nowadays you know technology is going to make us lazy it's going to make us not think for ourselves. We're going to rely on it too much. It's These have been concerns for a very long time. And evidently since the 1950s, because Ray Bradbury has written this story that's obviously more advanced than the point that we're at right now. We don't have mm-hmm. a house that can do everything for that us. That I wish, honestly. Okay, but do you, though? Do you wish? Admit that you want that air flute, the thing where you step inside it and it like shoots you up the stairs. Okay, but then we're all going to be fat. Okay, but stairs suck. Okay, but and I'd it rather like, like so much fun. I'd rather not be unhealthy than have a convenient airflow that takes me up. The- you just get an elevator if you're that rich. Truth. But I feel like that's part of why he put these whimsical things in the story to make it seem like something really nice when in actuality it ain't. And there were points in the story where the technology was a little bit creepy. Not just in the nursery, because obviously that was meant to be creepy. The lions, like, constantly eating something. Yeah, that was... The vultures, like, circling the carcass. There were parts in the story with technology that I thought were a little unsettling. Mm -hmm. There was a part where, I think it was George... He wasn't happy with the food or the dishes or something like that. And he tells the house about it. And the table just, like, says a small, like, sorry. Oh, yeah, I remember reading that part. Yeah. And that was creepy to me. Like, the table talks back to you. The house is literally alive. It's very Alexa, Google Home-esque. But, like, 7.0. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Um, I actually have... I was doing a project in journalism, or a story in journalism, a couple of days back about the technology convention in Las Vegas called CES. Okay. 
And one of the products that was on display there was, wait for it, an Alexa-enabled toilet. What? (laughs) Indeed. And (laughs) I had a thought. I was thinking, is this necessary? Do people need, do do people really, truly need an Alexa-enabled toilet? Alexa, flush. (laughs) Wait, what would you even... I I was researching it because I was very confused. Yeah. You can ask it to check the water temperature. Oh. It can, like, it can do good things. It can check water usage. Okay. That kind of stuff. But I still don't think if that's a worthy investment into the future. You know what I mean? I feel like there's a lot more useful things you could be doing with your sciencey resources. You're right. And I think that's something that Bradbury is touching on as well. There's just, they buy this house. And they say it too. They buy this house because they were just, they just bought it. They yeah. were rich or they had the money and they just bought it. It's so normal for them now Yeah. to see this house that can literally do every single thing for them. The mom even says it's a better mother to her children than she is herself. That was a really creepy part for me. Yeah. That, that idea. I I didn't like that. <laughs> it's normal to be raised by artificial intelligence. <sighs> that that's is a, that's a scary. That is a scary thought. And Bradbury was talking about it in the 1950s. Yeah, that's the crazy part that even back then Those things were a concern, and it's still a concern now. It is. And I think we did a little research on the story itself. In the 1950s when this came out, it was when there was a rise in popularity in the television. Mm -hmm. People were buying this box that served you moving images and were very concerned about what this would do to them and how it would affect their relationships. And I think that's... That's the react. The story is the reaction Bradbury had to that fear, you know. Yeah, especially because you put a TV there, you can plunk your kids in front of it. Booyah! That's it. That's parenting. Just chuck your kids in front of a TV. They can entertain themselves. You don't have to do anything. You can cook. You can clean. You don't have to worry about them. You know. It's like when parents give their children's iPad when they're <sighs> iPads when they're like, yeah, when they are like two years old. Yeah, because it's a way to keep them entertained. Mm-hmm. Do you think this story is maybe a criticism of parenting as well? I definitely think so, because they just let their kids play in this nursery because it's easy, but then also it's because it's what's normal, so they don't question it. They don't question, oh, maybe putting our kids in this nursery. Well, they do question it eventually in the story, but Mm -hmm. at first they don't. It's just normal that the kids play in the nursery. And then also, one thing that I saw while researching this is the children get more and more detached from their parents. Like, they go to that carnival, Mm -hmm. and they just televise in to say, oh, we can't eat dinner today, sorry. Yeah. And then when they come back, they're very... I found that they were very formal with their parents. Especially Peter. Let's talk talk about Peter. Peter was so creepy. I just pictured him as a marionette doll, honestly. (laughs) You pictured him as a Like, you know that little dressed-up one with the bow tie and the suit? Ah! I mean, I get it. Like, when I was... father. Yeah. Yeah. When I was reading him in the reading part of this episode, I remember using this very 
robotic voice. And there's this part where he essentially threatens his father. Yeah. And his father is like, um, I'm not gonna take threats from my son. And oh, he's like... reasonable response. And he goes, very well then. And it's, <laughs> it's very... It's very creepy. It's really unsettling, I think, the way Peter and Wendy just talk. And I think that's when I started to realize that the kids were actually going to do something. Because they lay that groundwork early on that something is wrong, something is creepy, even though this house is beautiful and amazing, something's going to happen. And you can just tell. And especially with the description of the Velt in the nursery, mm-hmm. the way they describe the sun and the lions. Oh my god. Oh my god. The way they describe the lions is constantly telling you something bad's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And another thing they do to sort of foreshadow the ending is they have things where... Um, they recognize the screams. They recognize the screams, sort of. And then they also find things. Like, he finds his wallet yeah. and his bloody and been chewed on. And then the Almost scarf. like he got eaten. And they found the scarf and he's been bloody and chewed on. Almost like he got eaten. And one thing that they say is, are the lions actually real? Because they say that earlier. He asks... The father so, asks the psychologist, mm-hmm. is it possible for them to be real? And the psychologist um, goes, no, of course, course not. not. reality. But then at the but then as they walk as they walk out of the nursery at one point it says that the door shakes mm-hmm. like the lions had hit it mm-hmm. so we don't actually really know and it's I just realized this when you were when you were talking but the fact that they found their items that had been bloody and chewed up they had heard their screams mm-hmm. when they were in bed and their children had broken into the room. Their children had been imagining their parents being eaten by lions for, I don't even know how long. Yeah. Must have been a while for it to have been in the nursery every day. So they were thinking constantly about this African veldt where their parents are being chewed on by lions and vultures are circling the desert and the bodies. Yeah. I think one of the lines from George the father that was really interesting to me and sort of relates to that is a line where he says, no one's really too young for death thoughts. Like, even mm-hmm. from when you were little, you shot people with cat pistols. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's a little different, you know? It is. It is a little different. You know? If you, you're playing mock, you have, like, mock guns and... Oh, I've been shot! Oh, yeah. I'm dying It's different than if you're literally constantly imagining and pe- seeing and it. seeing you visualizing know? it yeah having this room visualize your thoughts every single day yeah until they become reality yeah this is bradbury's way of commenting on the effect technology is going to have on children if if they are raised by this ai if they are raised by this house that does everything for them visualizes their thoughts they have essentially no privacy. This is what happens. Yeah. I think that's really relevant because um, the name of this short story is The Velt, but it was actually originally called The World the Children Made. Oh. Yeah. That. And I mean, that sort of changes things. Yeah. Right? Because the whole house is a world the children made. Yeah. The Velt, obviously, is a world the world children, the children made. made. Yeah. 
And I think what really got me about that wasn't just the fact that it was this crazy scene. It was the fact that they could be imagining other things. Like, the father tries to bring up Aladdin and Vima. By the way, Vima, in case you guys didn't get it, because I didn't get it at first, is actually a DC character who pairs up with Wonder Woman at some points. I didn't know that. Just a That was just a strange little illusion. Yes, thank you for But yeah, us. just the fact that they could have been imagining these fanciful things. Like, if you could go in a room where anything you imagined would become real, I'd have the time of my life. I wouldn't be picturing a... Th- that. <laughs> um, we were talking about how we don't know how long they've been imagining this, yeah. but in the story, they reference this moment where the kids were mad at the parents because the father, I think, wouldn't let them go to New York or... Oh, yeah, remember something that? like that. Something like that. I think... They started imagining these, basically, these lions eating their parents around that time. Because it wouldn't make sense for them to have started thinking about this earlier, because their parents have given everything to them. This is the first time, I feel like, when they've actually denied the children something. And they wouldn't feel bad about cutting the parents out, because they're nothing. Yeah, because they have this entire system of objects that has been that have been parenting them for their entire life. Yeah. That's so creepy. Yeah, they don't need the parents. The parents are just there. It's the house that's their parents. Mm -hmm. I feel like we say this every time, that it's creepy. We've read so many creepy stories. Okay, but to be fair, the best short stories, well, not the best ones, but a lot of the good ones are the creepy ones because those are the ones that comment on society. Yeah. You know? And that's something I think we take pride in choosing when we're picking our stories, one of the things that we look for is something to comment on socially. Yeah. And you can especially expect that from, like, this author, because he also wrote Fahrenheit 51. 451. Oh, sorry. Okay. (laughs) Okay, it's okay. Fahrenheit 51, y'all. No, but I think... I think those are some of the most interesting short stories to read and talk about. The Mm -hmm. ones that have that background and talk about the things in real life. Because I don't know about you, but just as a teen in today's age, I've it's been a thought that, you know, technology is sort of taking over our lives a little bit. And I read these articles or I read these fictional stories that talk about things that are going to happen mm-hmm. or how the world is going to look in, I don't know, 2040, 2050, 2060. And I realize that I am going to be alive then yeah i am going to see this happen or see it not happen yeah and that scares me that it scares me how different our world is going to look yeah in a few decades from now you know what i mean yeah i'm i'm the kind of person who hates change so when i think of <laughs> these types of things it scares me a little bit yeah it is scary that idea that everything is going to be so almost unrecognizable, you know, from parenting to technology to already now parenting is so much different. You have to think about parents are using Life 360. Oh, parents yeah. have to put that parental control on their kids' iPhones. Mm-hmm. One thing that really is a big thing today in technology is ads that are directed towards kids. Mm-hmm. That's it. There was just a huge controversy on YouTube about that. We have to label your videos as um, if oh, they're yeah. intended for kids, uh-huh. and then they can be demonetized, which is, it's hurtful towards those 
artists and creators, but I've heard a lot of people saying that it's good that we have at least something to protect our kids, even if it's a little morally harmful to those creators. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that we have at least some rules in place to protect kids, you know? Yeah. And I think Ray Bradbury thought in the 1950s that this is what the world was going to look like in the year 2000. (laughs) And obviously, that's not what the world looked like in 2000. So maybe the conjectures and the speculations that we're making about 2040 and 2060 are not entirely true, but that doesn't mean they don't have a a kernel of truth in them and that doesn't mean the restrictions we've been putting on this these technologies the precautions we've been trying to take Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that these things are not necessary to prevent that kind of world from happening yeah i think that's that's um one of the criticisms of this show called black mirror Mm -hmm. on Netflix. it takes these dystopian features based on realities in our own world and some people say like, you can't just point out every single technology as it's going to end our world and become disastrous. And people have made spoofs of saying, oh, no, like in olden days, if people read books, they'll never take their heads out of books. Books are evil. But, and that is, like, a thing. You can't just point out every single technology is bad. But you still do have to take some precautions. You yeah. Know? Like, you still have to take some precautions to make sure those things don't happen, even if they are... It's the two ends of the spectrum are bad. Being too careless, bad. Being too fearful of every technology that ever comes out, also bad. There Mm -hmm. needs to be a middle ground. I agree. And I think because of the way technology is going right now, we are going to be forced to take that middle ground. Yeah. There are going to be people who are on both ends of the spectrum, obviously. But I think the way that technology is ruling our lives right now, it's going to be morally imperative that we try to find a middle ground so that we don't end up like the family in this book yeah or this and one story. thing i think that is definitely really impactful is how as i guess humans we tend to really connect and anthropomorphize things like specifically roombas i'm gonna talk about roombas i'm sorry y'all <laughs> but have you ever seen people like caring for their roombas like their pets did you know like if you set some of those cleaning robots right, they make a little happy sound. You're like, oh! And I have, we have a little cleaning robot at my home. It's not a Roomba. It's like a tiny one that's off-brand and is the size of my hand. <laughs> and it only cleans my kitchen. But, like, if I knock into it, I'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? You know? Like, a little bit. Because, like, you just feel that way. It's a little small thing that's moving around. And as humans, it's we just feel that need. It's a little small thing that's that, moving around. We feel that need to, to sort of project emotions onto the things we see. And I don't know how that's going to impact technology like this, where it can talk to us and You're right. we're giving it emotions. But then also, there are people who just don't even see that. They're like, it's a robot. What are you even doing? Why are you talking to it? I feel it's like nothing. I'm in the middle of that. Yeah. Like, I, I get how people could get emotionally attached <laughs> to robots and sometimes it bumps into the walls. And yeah. I'm like, oh, precious, he's trying. <laughs> it's a robot who's been... Who? That's exactly! Been... Ooh, ooh, I got you. Okay, that was just a figure of speech. That was just a, a slight mistake okay. in okay. talking. Sure, Trisha, sure. Um, I was going to say something. Yes, I think what you said is there in the story as well because at the end when the parents tell their kids they're going to shut down the entire house 
yeah. the first thought the kids have is empathizing towards... They're like, don't do it, don't do it. Yeah. And then after they lock the parents in, Peter starts, like, talking to the house. He says, yeah. don't let them do this. Like, ugh. <laughs> it's that type of empathizing gone bad. Or yeah. there's too much of it. Yeah. You can't... They are still yeah. pieces of technology. If we place so much emotional importance on that, then we lose, obviously, the connections that we have with the actual human beings around us. Okay, you want to hear one thing that's a really cool story that I heard a while ago? Sure. Basically, there are these toy robot dogs, and a lot of people bought them and basically fell in love with them and treated them as actual dogs, basically, because it was amazing. You could get a dog, but it never dies, right? Okay. But then what happened is, I think it, I forgot what toy company owned it, but they stopped manufacturing it. And because they stopped manufacturing it, they didn't have replacement parts. So people's dogs started basically dying. And so you would go online, okay. and there were these stories of people, like, asking for different parts. And some people would send the people their parts, like, my dog died, but maybe yours can live a little bit longer. Oh, my God. <laughs> And it was this horrifying thing where people thought they would have this dog forever, but they were just dying and there was nothing they could do about it. And so they were trying to help each other, like, maybe have their dog for a little bit longer. But that just tells you how much people put into these things, right? Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) That's simultaneously disconcerting and sad. Right? Can you imagine I I I can't imagine. Yeah. That would yeah. that would be something that would happen yeah. in real life, I feel yeah. like. <laughs> you know what? Let's get back to the actual story. Yes. Yes. There was one last thing I wanted to talk about in the actual story and then we're going to end this episode because it's taking way too long. Yeah, we're going a little over time y'all, but it's fine. The children's names. Okay. I don't know if any of you noticed when we were reading it because I didn't notice. When I was researching it a little bit later, I realized the kids' names are Peter and Wendy. That's, do you, are you seeing the connection here, my friend? It's Peter Pan and Wendy. Yes. Shoot. Think about that. And that's, and oh my that's, gosh, and Wendy, like, went away from her parents to this imagine, imaginary fake world. Yeah. 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 But at the end, she comes back. But in this case, they come back and then they kill their parents, which, you know, it's Shoot. like a twisted version of Peter Pan. That's crazy. But it's, Man, I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think about it either. It's only when I saw that someone had made a comment about the children's names and to take note of that, I actually realized that it was Peter and Wendy. Oh gosh, and Peter's the one who sort of takes control. And Wendy just sort of like falls around a little bit. Yeah. She just falls around in this make-believe world and she's sort of like innocent, but Peter's the one who's always like, you shouldn't close the thing. Yeah. Don't let them take this away. Oh. So I think obviously that was an intentional choice on Bradbury's part to use the names Peter and Wendy, and I think he's using that to comment on something. He's using the story, a story that a lot of people know about Uh and can relate to, and twisting it to make his message hit even harder. And in Peter Pan, the kids are the heroes, but in this one, they're the villains and the parents are the heroes? Yeah. Oh, boy. I know. Oof. And on that note, we will leave you. Y'all, my mind just got blown. Give me a second. <laughs> um, if you have any reactions to that, go to bit.ly slash a break from reality 
and you can comment and give us new story ideas if you want us to read a story or if you have some comments about this story. We'd love to hear them. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.